So we're recording as of now. So welcome everyone and thank you very much. The reason why we're doing this program today is we've had a primer on nursing home quality standards for uh, a number of years and last year, actually 2016, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services revised all the nursing home regulations. So we in turn revised the primer and thanks very much to Charles Gorgi and Dara Belenajad who both worked on updating and editing it for the new release, which was earlier this year, 2018. It does reflect all of the new regulatory requirements. So as I usually do, I'm going to start off with a little bit about uh, what we are. Um, for those of you who don't know, I think many of you do, uh, we're the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. We are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving uh, care and quality of life and dignity for residents in uh, nursing homes and other residential care settings. We mostly work we do uh, by doing policy uh, analysis and systemic advocacy in New York State and nationally. We also provide more and more uh, information on staffing levels and quality measures and enforcement actions uh, and other information about licensed nursing homes uh, across the U.S. Uh, in a, as usable form as possible. So we'll certainly be doing more programs on this because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, CMS just released um, new payroll-based journal data on staffing. So this is like the best information we've had on staffing ever. And so we'll talk more about that in other programs. But this, that's the kind of thing we have available on our website right now. You can look up any nursing home in the country that is in compliance with this standard. Most of them are, but not all. And you could find out about the direct care staffing levels in your nursing homes and those in your community and state. Uh, we also do programs like this. I'm really happy and, and, and uh, feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with ombudsmen and families and some residents and people who are working with families and with residents to help improve care and to translate some of the work and some of the issues that we're seeing on the policy level to um, to help improve care, and that's certainly one of the things we hope to be doing today. And last but certainly not least, we are very proud to be home of the Long-Term Care Amazon Program for the Hudson Valley, and a shout-out to Gloria. Gloria, everyone's on mute, so you can't respond back, but um, thank you, Gloria, for all you do, and Teresa also, if she's on. Uh, a little bit about me. I joined LTCCC in 2002, and I've been the executive director since June of 2005. And then you'll see this a lot. I include a link to our website throughout because, again, we have these materials, we have the primer, and we have other materials as well. Everything on the website is free, free to use, free to share, et cetera. And I am really thrilled when I hear people use it in their family councils and resident councils in ombudsman trainings, et cetera. Uh, that's what it's there for. So what are we talking about today? Again, we're going to talk about the primer, which we just updated I put a little picture on the right-hand side of the screen here of what our website looks like. So you can see the primer is in the Learning Center. It's the first tab on the left-hand side. Uh, you could also see we have fact sheets, issue alerts. Um, we have the webinar programs, and we have our Dementia Care Advocacy Toolkit in the Learning Center. And you can see as well that you can find other information and materials here about nursing home care and uh, some materials on assisted living as well which we hope to be expanding this year, uh, putting out more materials on assisted living. But there's a lot of data and information 
on um, on nursing homes. And again, it's all free and free to share. We strongly encourage and appreciate when you do that. Uh, so what's in the primer? This is actually a picture of the table of contents, except for the orange and green um, circles that I added. And you can see we have you know, a little bit of a background, which we'll talk about today, uh, how to assess nursing home quality with nursing home compare, a summary of the federal law and of the federal regulations and oversight and how that works, just to give people a bit of a background. But the bulk of the primer is on the different quality standards, not all of them, but many of those which we've identified as important and not only important, but also um, a good basis for resident-centered advocacy. So each one of these is really a, you know, something that we think could be useful. Now, the primer can be used in a number of different ways. What we did on the PDF file, which is available on our website, is we made these all internal links. So I don't know if you could see, I think you can see my cursor, but if you click on maintain on the first one on the upper right-hand side, number 32, maintain nutrition status unless unavoidable, if you click on that in the PDF, it'll take you right to that, that regulatory requirement. And I think that is hopefully valuable and important because someone could go here, I mean, the primer is, as you can see, over 54 pages long, but you can go to the table of contents. You can either do a search or you can look for an issue in which you're interested and go immediately to the section of the requirements that um, that, that fit your need or, or that answer that hopefully answer the question uh, about which you're concerned. So we have a lot of different issues here from residents' rights to care planning to um, physician oversight of services, medication errors, uh, et cetera. So we have a lot of stuff here. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not comprehensive. There are other standards and regulations, certainly, but we tried to include some that we thought were most useful rather than having a document, which the federal requirements are, which are several hundred pages. This kind of distills it down to, again, about 55 pages that can be used and hopefully as useful as possible in the PDF. So to get started with some of the introductory materials in the, prim in the primer, we talk a little bit about how to access care. Uh, and I wanted to mention especially Nursing Home Compare. This is the um, page for Nursing Home Compare that you'll find if you go to it's medicare.gov forward slash nursing home compare. And you could enter either zip code, um, search for facility by city. But, oops, sorry about that. Uh, by city uh, or by state. And then once you fill in that, uh, that white box in the middle, it'll populate the bottom that you can actually write in a facility's name, et cetera, and then do a search. The search gives you five-star ratings for the nursing home. It gives you ownership and staffing information, and it also gives you inspection results and information about any federal penalties. Uh, just one important note, uh, many states impose their own penalties. So a nursing home, if it's found to be uh, deficient, can have either a federal penalty or a state penalty. And some states um, do only state penalties or they do a combination thereof. The state penalties do not show up on nursing home compares. It's something about which we've advocated with um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for many years that it should include all penalties to give people a good picture but they have um, not listened to that argument. So right now it only includes federal penalties. So it may not show you everything 
or every way in which a nursing home has been penalized. A little bit more before we, we move on to the regulations about assessing nursing home quality, using nursing home compare and other resources. Uh, nursing home compare, and sometimes it gets to be honest a lot of heat because nursing home quality and nursing home care and services I think can be very hard to quantify. But in our opinion, and I think uh, and that of others as well, it's pretty well known to be uh, by far the most comprehensive and I would say reliable resource for finding out about what's going on in a nursing home because it includes staffing information, because it includes the citations, uh, includes information about ownership, et cetera, and, uh, and quality measures. Not all those data are perfect, but together they give a pretty good picture. And I would say importantly, the nursing home compare, they, it, it's the federal website. So they don't take money from nursing homes. They don't take money from providers uh, in order to be listed like some other resources do that are private. They're really just putting out the information as much of it as possible. And as I mentioned before, it's constantly improving. So they've improved the data on staffing, et cetera. So it is, it's not perfect, but I think it's a very useful tool and it's something, again, if you join us in future programs, we've talked about in the past and we'll talk about more this year, later this year, um, to discuss some of those improvements and how you can use them. Uh, in addition, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, we mentioned in the primer, and I just want to mention here, there's an underlying data uh, website called data.medicare.gov. There's also a website called data.cms.gov. They both have some uh, more in-depth information about enforcement, about care, et cetera. And then in addition, as I mentioned before, we're putting a lot of this information up on nursinghome411.org in as usable a form as possible. So we always appreciate your feedback. Uh, you know, feel, feel free to email us at info at ltccc.org if you have a question or concern, and we'll try to help you with that. Uh, but what we try to do with, with our website is we take the data from data.medicare.gov and we essentially clean it up. And you know, we'll talk about that again in future programs because uh, I don't want to get too far um, off course. But we do try to put, and the information is up there, uh, as I mentioned before on our website, uh, we do try to put up information that is as usable and useful as possible for people who are interested in finding out what's going on in the nursing homes in their state, in their community, with their individual facilities, et cetera. Lastly, before we move on, I just wanted to mention ProPublica, which is an independent uh, investigative or nonprofit investigative journalist organization. They have a nursing home inspect website, and that's also a very useful, I use it quite often, it's very useful for finding out about citations, deficiencies, et cetera, uh, and what they mean for nursing homes by state, by, uh, by nursing home name, et cetera. So it's another good background resource. Uh, so a little bit, we talked about this in the premise, so I wanted to include it here as well, but uh, I'll go fairly quickly. I wanted to talk a little bit about the nursing home system and how it works. So essentially, uh, almost all nursing homes in the United States uh, participate in Medicaid and or Medicare. And participate is a, uh, is a government term. It means that they take Medicaid or, and or Medicaid money, and most nursing homes take um, both of them. When a facility or a nursing home agrees to take Medicare or Medicaid money for any of its residents, 
it agrees to meet all the standards that we talk about in, under the nursing home reform law, all the standards that we talk about today, and pretty much all the standards that we ever talk about in any of our work. You know, occasionally we'll mention a state standard, especially when we're doing something directed towards the state, but the, uh, the federal requirements, the federal standards are really fundamental to the care and quality of life that nursing homes residents uh, are entitled to receive and should be receiving. Importantly, as I note here, the second to last bullet, federal protections are for all residents in a nursing home, no matter who pays for their care, whether it be Medicare, Medicaid, their Uncle Jack, I do have an Uncle Jack, um, or though he doesn't pay for my care, uh, or private pay. So the, these protections that we talk about go for everyone who's paying for their care, whether they're Medicaid or Medicare, et cetera, is completely irrelevant when we talk about whether or not the standards apply to the residents. Uh, before we move on, I just wanted to mention the bullet above that, that states may have additional protections. So some states, for instance, uh, require that a nursing home have an RN in the building 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our state, New York, is one of those states. That is not a federal requirement, and therefore um, not all states have that. Similarly, similarly, excuse me, uh, many states, the majority of states now have minimum staffing requirements, a set number of staffing that every nursing home must, must have. I think it's about 35 states, I want to say. Uh, our home state, New York, is not one of those states, so we don't have a minimum staffing requirement. What the federal law requires is that nursing homes have sufficient staffing. That leads us really to the next um, to the next slide. So the federal law requires that every nursing home resident is provided the care and quality of life services that they need to attain and maintain uh, his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. And that includes staffing. So staffing is recognized by CMS as, as important, as very important. Uh, it's been recognized by study after study after study as being uh, one of the most important, if not the most important indicators of the quality of care provided in, in a nursing home. But I think uh, it's pretty well acknowledged that many nursing homes, far too many nursing homes, don't have enough staff to provide this level of care. So I usually like to take a moment, I'd like to do that here as well, to talk a little bit about highest practicable, because I know when I speak to families and, and ombudsmen and other people who work with residents, that it can be a difficult concept to understand. It's not highest practical. It's not what the nursing home decides to provide in terms of staffing or services in, that are in line with um, what its hiring can be, what, it's hi what they want to do in terms of spending money on services or spending money on care staff. It means that for each individual that the nursing home takes in, they are required under federal law to ensure that they have the staff and the other services that are needed to make sure that every individual is able to attain and maintain the highest, their, his or her highest, excuse me, practicable, what he or she is able to do in terms of physical, emotional, and social well-being. What that means is that if I come into a nursing home and I can, um, and I cannot run a mile, it's not expected that the nursing home is going to 
then help me run a mile. That, that may not be um, possible. However, if I'm able to walk to the bathroom with some help, the nursing home is responsible for having enough staffing to make sure that when I ring my call bell, someone comes in a timely manner. And I know this is usually a hot-button issue, and it's something that certainly we can readdress at a future program because uh, I know we could spend hours just talking about this and, and people not getting that level of care. I mean, that's, that's something that's unfortunately can be pretty tragic for individuals and, and for their families. But I wanted to give you all an idea. This is what we have a right to, and this is why uh, I think, you know, doing these programs, it's so important to me because I wish I knew this information when I was a family member years ago, and I hope that it's helpful to others that we have a right to this level of care, and that is what nursing homes are paid to provide. Uh, and by the way, just, just as an aside, you know, a lot of times nursing homes will say, well, we don't get enough money um, to provide the level of care, et cetera. They, uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, just announced the new rates um, for nursing homes in the coming year, and nursing home care, um, you know, it's a couple, generally a couple hundred dollars a day for Medicaid services, the long-term care services. But for Medicare services, those rates can be five, six, seven hundred dollars or more a day. And in fact, in the latest announcement from CMS, they are going to be paying nursing homes in rural areas. Oops. Um, hi. Sorry about that. I think that someone became unmuted. Hold on one second, folks. I'm sorry. And I'm just going to... Apologize for that. I think someone joined this, and for some reason they were not muted. Uh, so, again, what in CMS just announced that for rural facilities, um, they're going to be paying Medicare rates of upwards of $850 per day. Per resident, uh, so that's certainly five, six, seven, eight, eight hundred and fifty dollars is enough to provide staff, and um, that's sufficient to ensure that every resident is able to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. And again, this is pretty much paraphrasing. It is paraphrasing. Excuse me, what the requirements are. So it's not just clinical. It gets to emotional. It gets to social that people shouldn't be isolated, as I'll often say, bingo should not be the only activity that a facility provides, et cetera. Um, but I want to move on just very briefly, excuse me, before we do that, the law passed in 1987, uh, regulatory standards came out in 1991, and again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, they were entirely revised in 2016, and those revised requirements are going to be implemented, meaning they're going into effect in November of 2016, November of 2017, and November of 2019. So about a year and a half from now will be the final implementation of those regulations. So here what we have, and this is also directly from the primer, uh, I, I just give some a description here of how to use it. So what we did was, uh, you know, we have a note here, I forgot what page this is, probably around page four or so, uh, right after the table of contents, is that we wanted to make this as useful as possible. So we include information on the federal code that goes with it, 
and with each regulate regulatory standard, excuse me, and with the the F tag that goes with it. Now the F tag, for those of you who are not aware, that is the federal tag that is associated with each federal requirement. So you have a requirement, say for instance, uh, we'll talk next about uh, residents' rights. You have a requirement about residents' rights. And then that will have an F tag, and the F tag is used by state and federal surveyors, state and federal inspectors, when they see that a regulation has not been met, that they will code it with an F tag. Why is this coding important to us? Is because if you go back to Nursing Home Compare, or if you visit a nursing home, you can see their latest inspection results, which is called a statement of deficiencies. And you can see with each F tag what it was that they might have been cited for if, if there are any citations. So again, you can see that every nursing home is required to have that available to visitors. And if you go to a nursing home listing on Nursing Home Compare, you can find the statements of deficiencies that they exist, you know, if the nursing home has been cited for the last three years. And so the F tags are very handy. We also included them at the end in an appendix to the program, so you can see, excuse me, to the primer, so you can see what that list is and what the different F tags are. But each, the statements of deficiencies, I find, uh, are very interesting because they tell a story often of what, you know, what was found in a nursing home, et cetera. So it's just a useful way for you to, one, know how to use this information, but also, and, you know, those of you who have seen me in person, I always tell uh, families and, and residents and uh, ombudsmen that, you know, you don't have to just say that some bald guy came to my facility or came to a, a symposium I, I was at and told me that these are the resident rights, that we include all the regulations, all the, the citations, not because you have to be a lawyer to use them, but because you don't just have to say, it was, you know, someone came and told me this. Um, they actually exist. As I note here in the top uh, on the paragraph one in the purple at the very end, if you go to the, the uh, Code of Federal Regulations, ecfr.gov, you can find them all there. Uh, so in the rest of today's program and in our program next month, I'm going to focus on some of the specific standards that, again, we've identified as most relevant. This is not comprehensive uh, by any means. There are hundreds of pages of regulations that uh, and guidance guidelines that really lay out how residents should be treated in terms of their care, in terms of their quality of life, in terms of their safety, and in terms of their dignity, as well as in terms of the safety of the nursing home, uh, et cetera. So what we want to do is here really just look at some of the, uh, you know, selection of some of the standards that we thought were most important. In the June 19th program, which you don't have to attend, but you're more than welcome to, there are two standalone programs. We're going to talk very briefly about, you know, some of the materials we've talked about so far, and then we'll go uh, right to some of the specific regulations and talk about them and talk about how you can use them in your advocacy. Uh, so I'm going to go right to standard one. This is a copy, and you'll see throughout the rest of the program, uh, these are copies that I made directly from the primer, so you can see what it looks like. So. One, we have the number here, which, again, we, of course, relates back to the table of contents. Uh, it has a descriptive title, General Residence Rights, and then you could see in the brackets, it's 42 CFR, that's Code of Federal Regulations, 483.10, 
So, again, you know, as I was just saying, you don't have to say, oh, you know, I was on a program in May and someone told me I have this right or my resident has this right. Uh, you can refer right back to that. Of course, you're free to make copies, and that's the whole point of what we do is people can take this information beyond the program and make copies of, um, of these materials or use the, um, the electronic copies available on our website. But you have the reference right there, 42 CFR. And then, again, the F tag, as I just mentioned, that's the tag that is used when a facility is cited for this regulatory standard. So just to go back very quickly, if you were looking at a statement of deficiencies uh, for your nursing home and you saw F550, you could come back to the primer and you could look it up and see, oh, here's some information on what this means, what residents' expectations uh, and rights are. And then think about, you know, hopefully how we can use that for our resident-centered advocacy to um, to make that happen for the residents in our facilities and in our communities. So uh, everything in italics in the primer, as you see on this page, is a quote either, you know, is excerpted, I should say, either directly from the regulations or from the CMS guidance. As I note here in one of the footnotes, the CMS guidance, that's um, sub-regulatory information. And what that means, essentially, I don't want to get uh, too complicated to go down a rabbit hole, so to speak, but the regulations tend to be very short. Uh, so here you see the regulation, the resident has a right to a dignified existence, self-determination, and communication with and access to persons and services both inside and outside of the facility. So that's, that's the essential right. What the guidance says is this is what we expect the facility to be doing. This is what we expect our, our inspectors, our surveyors to see when they go to a facility. And CMS says this all the time to us. These guidelines also can be used by residents and by families and by ombudsmen and other advocates to measure and to understand and get insights into what they can expect from their facilities. So these are, um, these are really useful information. The nursing homes have been put on notice about everything that we talk about in these, in the guidance and in the regulations. There's a lot of, of companies out there that do trainings for them. CMS does trainings for them. There are semi-governmental organizations called quality improvement organizations that do trainings and provide technical um, advice and expertise for them. So one of my goals here and in doing this and, and having these programs is to hopefully equip you so you all have that information. And at least these are, are not things that we can memorize, at least I can't, but that you, know, that you can come back to these resources and use them effectively in your nursing homes. Uh, so, and again, you can see at the bottom there's a link to the guidance. It's called Appendix PP in the State Operations Manual. State Operations Manual is what the federal agency gives to every state uh, as far as how the state um, agency, the state inspection agency, is supposed to be looking at and guiding how they're supposed to be looking at facilities. Uh, so the res here again on B, the resident has the right to exercise his or her rights as a resident of the facility and as a citizen or resident of the United States. So taking these two things together, in my mind, now, I always think about when I, when I come across a problem in a nursing home uh, that relates to residents' rights, that relates to the resident 
being treated in a way that is, I think, not um, doesn't appear to be cognizant of their rights. That it's important for me to remember that you know just because you enter a nursing home doesn't mean you are no longer a person uh, and are no longer an individual and are no longer you know a citizen or a resident of the United States of America with all of the rights that that uh, you know that someone who is a resident or a citizen of the United States has. So this really spells it out. Uh, and then the second standard on this page is the right to be fully informed. So I'm not going to go through all, you know, 50 or so standards that are here, but I want to highlight, again, some of the ones that I think are most important and useful, and also just to show you how we are um, putting it in the primer so that you can hopefully find it useful in your work in the future. So the right to be fully informed, it, it doesn't sound like much, I think, offhand, but it's actually a critically uh, important standard. So the resident has the right to be informed of and participate in his or her treatment, including the right to be fully informed in language that he or she can understand of his or her total health status, um, etc. Two, the right to participate in the development and implementation of his or her own person-centered plan of care. This is not me saying it. It's not me as an advocate saying it. It's what CMS has said. This is the federal requirement, the right to participate in the development and implementation of his or her person-centered plan of care. All those words are so important, including the right to identify individuals or roles to be included in the planning process, the right to request meetings, and the right to request revisions to the person-centered plan of care. It doesn't have to be quarterly. Um, it doesn't have to be annually. You know, it really has to reflect, again, getting back to what is meeting the needs of the resident to ensure that he or she is able to attain and maintain his or her highest practical well-being. And just as a quick aside, I know from personal experience as well as professional experience that these are difficult challenges. Please, I want to make sure that people understand this is not an easy answer that we walk away from this program or we walk away with this knowledge and everything is going to fall into place. But what I have told, you know, and spoken when I speak to family members over the years is that the, if you don't know what your rights are, there is no way that you are going to be able to advocate for them. And so as advocates, uh, I think as, you know, as people, you know, as ombudsmen and others who are working with residents and families as the residents and families in facilities, knowing our rights helps us to advocate for them in every way possible. And that could be just, you know, explaining to your caregiver, look, how can you help me to achieve these rights? I know that this is what exists. How can you help me to achieve it? To advocating as a family counsel, advocating as a, an ombudsman who is helping families and residents, etc. Um, so moving on, includes the right to participate in establishing expected goals and outcomes of care, the type, amount, frequency, and duration of care services, and any other factors related to the effectiveness of the plan of care. The reason why I want to talk about this and why I'm going through it and reading it, and you can read it on your own, of course, but I want to spend some time reading it because I think 
it's so important. It, it, I know it reverberates with me to think about these are all the things. It's not what I'm saying. It's not just my ideas as an advocate for residents. It is what CMS is saying that every resident is entitled to receive and what we, the public, are paying for when we when we contract for that care uh, with, with the nursing home. So goes on, a resident is fully informed when he or she receives information in a manner he or she can understand on the benefits and reasonable risks of treatment, potential changes to his or her medical condition, and information about reasonably available alternatives. And I noted this in bold, being appropriately informed and in particular having the opportunity to provide informed consent is increasingly considered a critical component of good and appropriate care. And that's, that's me. You can see it's, it's at the bottom. It's not in italics here. That's what I have, have included as a note because it's so important. Informed consent is a huge, huge issue because too often care happens or doesn't happen and residents or their representatives, usually their families, are not fully informed about all these things, about the what the care plan is, about how it's supposed to meet a resident's needs, about alternatives and choices, et cetera. Um, and then the fourth, I'm going to skip number three for now, you know, for, for this program, but standard number four, I just wanted to mention before we move on, is the right to choose a personal attending physician. I know this is uh, a real tough one. In fact, when CMS revised the regulations in 2015, to 2016, and they were published in 2016, um, one of the things that they noted in the responses they got from the nursing home industry was the nursing home industry, many of the, of the industry representatives commented on proposed, the, excuse me, the proposed regulations at the time, how can you expect us to allow uh, in, you know, residents to choose their own position, that's unfair, et cetera. And CMS said in its response to those comments in 2015, we were surprised to receive so many comments because residents have been entitled to choose their own physician since 1991. And the fact that there is so little awareness about this right amongst the industry that they think it's something new is problematic. So there are, there's more in the primer here about this, but I just want, you know, as I say here, Underneath uh, number four is that there are some qualifications of this. You can't force someone to provide care for you if they don't want to, et cetera. Um, but there are, it's a very strong and I would say important requirement. Before we move on, I wanted to talk a little bit more about informed consent and how we, uh, we have other materials and information that supports this. So just going back up, you can see we have the, this is the primer. Again, you look at, at the bottom of the page, number two, right to be fully informed. We have the, the citation to the code, so you know, again, it's not just me making it up. We have the F tag, so you can look and see if your nursing home has been cited about this. We actually have, if you look at the, um, uh, the footnote, we actually list what the F tag used to be, because as I mentioned before, the regulations, the new guidance and the new F tags came out in the end of 2017. Um, so that has changed. So you may not see F552 cited. In fact, you wouldn't see it cited if the facility was cited for the um, for not meeting this requirement 
before November of 2017, they would have been cited for F-154. I don't want to make this too complicated for people, but I just want to make people aware that these numbers change and therefore our ability to record them as change. What we've done in this primer is given you access to both information so you can see uh, and track back. So we have there, we had the regulation, we had some information about the regulation and how it's expected to be implemented. What we did for a number of these standards is we put together fact sheets. And this is a copy of the front and back of the fact sheet. All the fact sheets are also available in the Learning Center of our website. They're all free. Um, you are welcome to take them, adapt them for your own organization, print them out. Um, I know some people are using them with resident and family councils and ombudsman trainings and advocacy trainings, et cetera. I am always so happy to hear that. It really, um, uh, really makes me glad. But I just wanted to go really quickly and let you see, one, how we connect this. So you have that 55-page primer, um, but that's not something you can easily maybe take to or share with people in a resident council or a family council or, or a training. Here you have the fact sheet. You can look it up on our website, print it out front and back, and this lets people know, again, pretty, pretty similarly, a lot of the same information, but also some added information. So we talk about in the first page on the left-hand side, in the yellow box, what is informed consent? Just let people know. And then we have some of the provisions just as we printed them in the primer, they're here as well. So number one, underneath that first yellow box, right to be informed of and participate in treatment plans. And it has the code, again, and the FTIP. Underneath that, number two, right to participate in the development and implementation of the care plan. And again, some information about that, some of which you'll see we just spoke about a few moments ago. And then number three, the facility must inform the resident of the right to participate and support the resident in this care plan. So this is something that we also identified as important and as useful and important for resident-centered advocacy for this fact sheet. So not only does the right exist, but the facility has a responsibility to inform the resident of that of the individual's rights. And for all of these things, if the resident is unable, for instance, you know, many residents, of course, have dementia, then it's their representative. The representative takes the place of the resident when it comes to these residents' rights. And then whenever possible, and this was based upon feedback that we received from family councils, is, excuse me, we put a checklist here on the right-hand side, also in yellow, a checklist for residents, families, and ombudsmen. Um, just letting you know what should be happening. The physician, not a delegated representative, but the physician should disclose and discuss the resident's diagnosis, if it's known, the nature and purpose of a proposed treatment or procedure, including medication, the risks and the benefits of the proposed treatment, alternatives regardless of their costs or the extent covered by insurance. That's a decision that you can make as a consumer, as a resident, or as a family member. The risks and benefits of alternatives to what's proposed, and then the risks and benefits of not receiving treatment or undergoing the procedure. So it's really important because I think as I mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about just basic residence rights, too often a resident enters a facility and we all, you know, to some extent consider him or her to no longer be a citizen of the U.S. Things happen to them. They are, you know, highly curtailed. Some things, I think, you know, are, 
have to happen in a residential setting, in a congregate setting. Whenever we are, you know, we go to work or we, we, we uh, are involved in a group, we all, of course, make compromises because we are part of that group. But essentially, it's so important. This is where a resident is living. This is where a resident is getting his or her care uh, and other services that, as CMS notes, and as I noted from the very beginning, it has to be tailored to meet the needs of individuals. It has to be, be really focused on that and tailored around that. Lastly, in the fact sheets, we always try to include some resources, whether it's to our website, which again has a range of materials on this. Uh, here we also include the consumervoice.org, which is the National Consumer Voice, is a, a group in Washington, D.C., that also has a lot of really excellent materials for residents and for family members and a whole Ombudsman Resource Center. And then we also include here a practical guide to informed consent. So what we try to do in these fact sheets is to provide some basic legal information, the information about the requirements so you know how they're supposed to be happening for the residents in the facility, and then wherever possible, a checklist that families and, and people who work with them and with the residents can use and some other resources for, for more information. In addition, so as I mentioned before, informed consent has been a really important issue for us um, and for residents is that we did a report a couple of years ago on informed consent rights in U.S. nursing homes. We did an overview here, you can see, of both state and federal requirements for informed consent. And then I think this is last in terms of informed consent. We also have model legislation that we put together. Uh, you know, what, what do people need to know? What, what does, what should informed consent look like? Essentially what informed consent look like, should look like from our perspective is that it should be in writing. Uh, neither the federal requirements, I think some states require that it be in writing, but the federal requirements do not require that. So, you know, all those things exist in terms of knowledge, in a way that you understand um, from a professional, the right to uh, know about alternatives, the right to make choices, the right to say no, but I think the written portion is, is what's missing, and that's why so many residents and families don't truly have informed consent because they weren't made aware. Oh, excuse me, I have one more, one more um, slide to show you on this, is that we also have educational programs. We've done, done one specifically on informed consent and participating in resident care planning. Again, this is available on our website. So I think I'm just going to do um, two more standards in this program today, and then again, we'll do many more in our June program. Same call-in and dial-in information uh, and login information for that program. These two are related. Uh, stand, the first standard I'll talk about, which is standard number nine at the bottom here, is freedom from abuse, neglect, and involuntary seclusion. So the resident has this very basic, and, and things, of course, you think, of course this is the case. The resident has the right to be free from abuse, neglect, misappropriation of resident property, and exploitation as defined in this subpart. This includes, but is not limited to freedom from corporal punishment, like kidding, uh, and voluntary seclusion, and any physical or chemical restraint not required to treat the resident's medical symptoms. So that's really important. Any physical or chemical restraint not required to meet the resident's medical symptoms. So those of you who know our work and have been on past programs, the 
a big concern for us is actually the one number eight, standard number eight above, is the use of chemical restraints. That, that far too many residents, everyone acknowledges, including government and providers, far too many residents in our nursing homes are receiving uh, dangerous and very powerful antipsychotic drugs, generally as a form of chemical restraint. But um, we don't have time to get into this today, but I just wanted to mention that people should be, as notes here, people should not be getting physical or chemical restraint unless it's required to treat the resident's medical symptoms. So here, and I think this is really useful, of course, that's why I included it here, is that they talk about what these things mean. Because oftentimes I'll talk to family members, uh, I'll talk to residents, and they know something is wrong, they know it's, say, quote-unquote bad, but they don't really know how to pinpoint what it means and how it fits in to the regulatory requirements. So that's what I try to do here. And I think for those of you who are ombudsmen and who are advocates on the phone, that also that helps for you to understand, for you to help residents and families understand what it is we are talking about, what it is CMS and the requirements are talking about when they talk about these things. So abuse. What I want to point out here, of course, you know, abuse is the willful infliction of injury and includes unreasonable confinement, intimidation, or punishment with, with resulting, excuse me, physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. What I emphasized here in bold, which I think is really important, abuse also includes the deprivation by an individual, including a caretaker, of goods or services that are necessary to attain or maintain physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. Again, getting back to that initial language I spoke about. And then lastly, and I think this is so important, instances of abuse of all residents, irrespective of any mental or physical condition, cause physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. Why do I want to emphasize that? Because most of our residents now have some level of cognitive um, dysfunction or dementia. And many residents have very significant levels of dementia. What this is saying is that if you are doing any of these things, whether it be physical abuse, whether it be humiliating someone, um, psychosocial abuse, even if that person doesn't understand, that does not mean that the abuse did not happen or that the abuse is not legitimate. So that's, that's really important. And they, they define physical abuse, corporal punishment, mental abuse, including humiliation, intimidation, fear, shame, agitation or degradation. So to say that a resident with dementia, if they tried to, to if, they, if they spoke disparagingly about that resident, uh, as they talk about here uh, later on a little bit, using audio-visual, audio excuse me, audio-video recordings, we're seeing more and more, unfortunately, of um, caregivers um, in nursing homes taking pictures of residents' genitals, of residents in a dirty diaper, et cetera, and posting it on Snapchat or sharing it with other people, friends or, or other workers. That is abuse. Plain and simple, it does not matter if the resident didn't know. It doesn't matter if the resident did not understand. CMS, the federal government, is identifying that as abuse, and they're identifying it as harmful. So that's really important. And then the second, the second standard that I wanted to talk about here is allegations of mistreatment, neglect, or abuse. And that's really, so it goes with, you have the freedom from abuse and neglect, and then freedom from allegations of abuse and neglect. So 
this is what the facility has to do. And again, I just want to emphasize, it's not me saying, oh, facilities should be doing this. It's not my personal feeling or advice. This is coming from the Code of Federal Regulations. In response to allegations of abuse, neglect, exploitation, or mistreatment, the facility must, not can, not may, not should, the facility must, one, ensure that all alleged violations involving abuse, neglect, exploitation, or mistreatment, including injuries of unknown source and misappropriation of resident property, are reported immediately. Must. Now, just let me again say, I know that these are difficult challenges. I know it can be very hard, but again, what we want to do here is to equip you all as, as family members, as residents, as ombudsmen, as advocates, as attorneys, etc., to know what these rights are, because if we know them, we can help residents and families and others understand what their rights are and advocate um, as effectively as possible. So just to go back, so the facility must ensure that these are reported immediately. Uh, they must have evidence that all alleged violations are thoroughly investigated evidence. So there should really should be something in writing that they invested in, conducted an investigation. They must prevent further potential abuse, neglect, exploitation, etc. while the investigation is in process. They must report the results of all investigations to the administrator or his or her designated representative and to other officials in accordance with state law, etc. So this is, I think, you know, obviously I thought that I included it here, but it's really useful information that, again, going back to how do we use this primer, going back to you can go back and you can find it. So you don't have to remember any of this, really, other than that the primer talks about abuse. And if you have a copy of it, uh, we sent out copies to a lot of the ombudsmen, and uh, we sent the email copies, I think, to everyone who was attending this call. And again, it's on our website. Um, you have access to this information. So very quickly, before I'll open it up for Q&A, we'll end the program. I wanted to include here a chart that we had put together. This summarizes two distinct things. There are two different regulation, regulatory requirements. One on the right-hand side is what we just talked about. Uh, allegations of abuse, neglect, exploitation, etc., and it talks about what should be done in terms of reporting, to whom, and when. The, the middle column um, with F608 in it, that is requirements regarding reporting of suspicion of a crime against the resident. This is something that we and other advocates fought really hard for. It was part of the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, in 2010, and it's, I think, absolutely essential. I mean, there was a government report that came out just a year or two ago that found that too often states were not, and nursing homes and, and the states overseeing them, were not ensuring that reporting of suspicion of a crime was happening. We applauded this. Uh, as I said, we fought for it, and we applauded for its inclusion because what has to happen very briefly is that there's any suspicion of a crime taking place against a resident there is a duty to report. If you look at the bottom left-hand side, when? If there is suspicious, if there's a suspicious, excuse me, suspicion that the crime or the alleged crime resulted in serious bodily injury, reporting has to take place immediately and absolutely within two hours. If there's no seriously serious bodily injury, then within 24 hours. 
period. That's really important. Who has to report? Anyone who works for the facility, whether it be anyone who's, who, who sees it or is, becomes aware of it, that includes not only caregivers, but administrators. Uh, it includes people who are coming to the facility, uh, you know, the plumber, you know, for instance, if they, have, if, they have a, if they have a plumber on staff, if they have, uh, you know, other workers coming in on staff and they see that everyone who works for the facility, whether as a direct employee or under contract, is required to know about this, this requirement and to act on it if they, if they see it. And an important component of this is that the fines for not doing this are substantial. They can be uh, up to over $200,000 for not doing it. So we really thought that this gave teeth to the requirement that crime be, re be reported as soon as possible or suspicion of crime be reported as soon as possible. Why was this important? Because too often wow. bad things are happening to nursing home residents and it's not being reported anyway, anywhere, excuse me, in an effective manner. So I'm going to wrap up really quickly. We have a fact sheet here. I won't review it now, but we talk about some of these requirements, some key definitions. Again, you could see some of the things that we've talked about here all wrapped up into two pages that you can take with you and move ahead. Uh, so I thank you all very much for joining us again. Our next program is June 19th, same time, same call and information. If you're on our list, we will send you a reminder. And then uh, just lastly, before I open it up, uh, the two blue boxes at the bottom for people in our home state of New York. If you're an ombudsman in New York State and you want us to let your um, supervisor know that you attended this program, it's www.surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1 this pdf by the way is on our website right now so you can go to the last page of the pdf and find it and then also there's the alliance of new york family councils which i strongly recommend um, joining if you are a family council or a family member interested in, in joining or starting a family council in your nursing home it's a terrific organization which i'm very proud to um to support and be involved in. So I'm going to open it up for questions right now. And first, before I do that, I'm going to uh, just see if anyone um, has has asked any questions here. Maybe I'll answer them afterwards. Sorry about that. And then let me first open up the lines. Hey, how you doing? Hi, so I've opened up the line so we can hear everybody. And if you uh, have any question right now, you're more than welcome to ask it. I have a question. Okay. I have a question. Okay, thank you. If everyone, actually what I'm going to do uh, is I'm going to... I'm going to mute everyone. Just press star six on your phone if you'd like to do If you'd like to ask a question, just press star six and we can answer. Hello? Um, hi, Richard. Hi, Charles. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, I have a question about the, um, the choose your own physician right, resident right, that you, mm -hmm. uh, that you were describing to us. I have found that sometimes facilities try to get around this by saying, well, fine, but the physician, the doctor has to be willing to come to the facility and attend staff meetings and this and that, which many outside physicians are not willing to do. So um, is there any response to that that you would recommend? 
Um, well, I, I think uh, I, I think you're, what you're saying is obviously right. I mean, that that is um, a lot of these regulations, a lot of these standards are challenging. That's why we all exist as you know, my organization exists. Why the Amazon program is so important, etc. Um, so I think that. Uh, I think that it's really tough, to be honest. I, I think that's something maybe we would try to do more um, advocacy around in the future, because I, I, you're right. I mean, even when a nursing home, you know, recognizes that they can, that, that individuals have the right, they can put up barriers to that. So I think, you know, one of the things that we're hoping to do in the coming year to address issues like this that are very stubborn is to um, get more feedback from residents and families and people working with them. Uh, it could even be anonymous about some of the issues that they're facing. And then we in turn can try to address this with, uh, you know, with the states and or with the CMS. So, you know, just looking at how, as I mentioned at the start, how a lot of these regulations changed or, or, or were um, finessed over the, you know, in recent years in 2016, say when they came out, it was in response to some of these problems, and that's why I emphasized, you know, what I did. Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't have a really good answer, but I think hearing about this problem, you know, one trying to negotiate, it would be my quick answer, you know, trying try to negotiate with them um, to make it reasonable for a personal uh, physician to to continue to see a resident. Um, and I think that the Amazon, of course, can be helpful with that. I think that. If you have a family council um, that, or, or a resident council, that if you're discussing that in the resident or family council, that raising the issue as a group um, can be useful as well. I and mean, that's certainly true of this issue, but it's true of other issues as well. And then I think, you know, uh, as I said, we're going to try to work to take in more feedback this year from residents and from families and from ombudsmen and advocates that we can use in our systemic advocacy. So if we're seeing this, you know, and it's happening and, and people are not able to negotiate it um, in a better way, uh, you know, to make it happen, I should say, for residents, then we can hopefully try to address this with, um, you know, on a policy level, either with CMS or with legislators on a state level or on a federal level. So I'm sorry I don't have a great answer for that, but but I hope that's uh, somewhat helpful. It is challenging, and that's why, yeah. uh, that's why we're here. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Charles. Uh, are there any other questions on the line? And then I'll try to read through. I know there were uh, some questions that were written in as well as some discussion, but I want to give people a chance to, uh, if you want to press star six, you can, uh, you can ask a question. Other than the fines, is there any other consequences um, if, if the nursing home takes pictures of a resident or it doesn't fa or fails to report abuse or neglect? Yes. So the the reporting, uh, the failure to report a uh, suspicion of a crime, excuse me, that has on its own very significant fines. As uh, as many of you probably know, you know the fines against nursing home tend not to be very large. This is, you know, one of the major points of our advocacy. And certainly we can, we can talk in another program about accountability um, and, and our work in this area. But I think that uh, in addition to the regular fines, now there, as I mentioned earlier, there are state fines and federal fines for violation of this standard, et cetera. But an individual can be um, 
punished uh, both legally if they broke the law. Uh, you know, so if it was a nurse aide, for instance, who was taking pictures, they can be excluded from providing Medicare or Medicaid services, meaning that they cannot work for a nursing home or cannot work for a provider of care either for a certain number of years or for a certain time period. I know that our Medicaid fraud control unit here in New York has done some work. For instance, they have um, enlisted some individuals such as this in putting to, in, in, in um, you know, gotten them to agree to do films that are used in in-service trainings and elsewhere to show that, you know, it's inappropriate and, um, you know, behavior that can result in not only harm to the resident, but also in them losing their license or their certificate to provide care. And then on the nursing home level, in addition to fines, a nursing home can face a number of penalties, such as uh, what's called the denial of payment for new admissions, meaning that they um, they won't get paid for anyone that they admit to a facility, which hurts facilities in their pocketbook. It's a serious, you know, can be a serious tool or significant tool. They can also be kicked out of Medicare or Medicaid if they are, um, you know, if, if they're found to have a serious violation. It doesn't usually happen, but uh, it can happen that they can be uh, forced out of Medicare or Medicaid if the violations are very persistent and very serious. Uh, any other questions or comments? I'm going to look, uh, for those of you who are still on the line, I'm going to look and see who. Um, so Peg Ingram said, I have a friend whose husband's vascular dementia has progressed to the point where he is no longer ambulatory, can't transfer, no longer recognizes her, rarely indicates awareness of his surroundings. She has been unable to find a memory care unit that will accept him since he can't transfer. Is her only choice a subacute rehab unit? Will subacute accept him um, because of his functional uh, trajectory? Well, the... So I think by subacute you're talking about a nursing home, and I'm getting the sense that he was in an assisted living. So there are requirements in regards to admission and retention that apply to nursing homes uh, that differ than those that apply to assisted living and adult homes. The ones for nursing homes tend to be much stricter in terms of what uh, a nursing home has to do. So I would, uh, you know, these can be tough issues, you know, without you know, knowing the person and knowing the situation and what is available to them. But uh, if they are working with an insurance or managed care plan, including, you know, Medicaid or Medicare plan, um, that could help them probably would be Medicaid at this point. Uh, and then, you know, possibly if they're working with an Amazon program, the Amazon program can help them as well. Uh, but the nursing homes, you know, they should be able to get into a nursing home that may be their their only their only option at this point, and I would say trying to work to find use nursing home compare et cetera to find the best possible facility for them um, you know, again possible because it can be difficult and as we know uh, too often you know people with dementia don't get good care in any setting um, okay, so that was i think um, um, peg Sarah Sarah Sarah. Uh, Jane Groves, how far can we expect uh, something, a facility to go to provide care to a resident by caregivers who speak the resident's language? The facility accepted a person who speaks, understands no English, but most of not all the person's caregivers, doctors, do not speak this person's language. Um, so, yes, the nursing home is required to have someone 
that can speak the resident's language, and that includes, there was actually just a recent case about this, about a nursing home uh, receiving a significant penalty because the nursing home did not have, uh, I think it was sign language available to meet the resident's needs, uh, 20, I think it was 24 hours a day, because of course it's 24 hour day care and monitoring. So, uh, yes, a nursing home is required to, to provide that in an effective manner to meet that resident's needs. Uh, thank you, Brenda. I'm glad, uh, and Sandy and Kevin. Uh, oops, lost sound. Um, that seems odd. Let me. Hi, so I, um, I hope that you all can hear me. Anyone who's left, let me. Hi. So, can you all hear? Yep. Yes. Great. Yes. Great. Yes. Okay, any other questions? Hi, I, I, I unmuted everyone just to see if there are any other questions. And now we're going to. I have, I have a question. Okay. Okay. I'm just wondering if you can put the Survey Monkey um, page back up because I didn't copy it down in time. Sure. And as I said, Thank for those you. of you who um, who may not be be watching the um, presentation but are listening in. The a PDF file is on our website, so you can go. Uh, you can go to this presentation right now. It should be one of the top things under um, you know, current news, etc. On the front page of our website, the uh, program for today, and just scroll down to the second to last um, frame. Great, and you'll see this as well. Okay, thanks. Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you all very much for joining us, and I hope that we'll see you in or, or hear from you in June. In the meantime, enjoy the beginning of your summer and stay safe. I know we have some storms sweeping across the country and heading right to my apartment. So uh, thank you all very thank much. Thank you. And have a thank great you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.